Father in heaven, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who say, God, I, I believe that you possess the power to transform my life, to change my situation. And God, even if you don't change my situation, I, I, I believe that you have the power to give me strength and endurance for the days ahead. So Lord, I pray that you would miraculously work and move in the lives of my brothers and sisters who say, God, here I am. I need you. I need you to intervene. And I ask according to your riches and glory for your honor, Father, to come upon me, to come upon my situation, upon my family. So Lord, would you do that? And as you do that, I will give you praise and glory. Let them sense your very presence that you are here, that you are moving and that you are working on their behalf. And we ask all these things for the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the Bible tells us here, beginning in the 10th verse, According to God's grace that was given to me as a skilled master, this is Paul speaking in Builder, I have laid a foundation and another builds on it, but each one must be careful how he builds on it, because no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, that is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on a foundation with gold and silver and costly stone, hay or wood, each one's work will become obvious, for the days will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work uh, that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 11, uh, be careful as you build. Build because no one can lay any other foundation than that what has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, uh, as we look at this, this foundation, uh, I want us to look at his story today, the story of the church. You know, and if you ask most people, <clears throat> tell me about the history of Christianity. Tell me about the history of church. This is kind of where most people would be. They would say, well, you know, Jesus came and he lived and he suffered and he died. He was crucified. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. Then some people got converted. Apostle Paul went on some missionary journeys and then we ended up at Rock Point. I mean, that's, you know, not everybody, but many of you might say, you know, after the Apostle Paul, I just kind of take a sharp left. I'm not real sure what happened after that point. Some of you have studied history. Uh, you've studied ancient history, and you know, know about that. You know uh, about Western civilization, and I'm, we're going to look at some of those things. But, you know, I'm doing a little short series here for the next few weeks uh, on uh, things that I want to teach my children before they graduate. Last week we looked at apologetics, which I encourage you. We just did ten questions that every Christian ought to be able to answer about the faith, uh, questions that we are often asked. And today I just want you to understand a little bit of the history. And we're going we're gonna to do 15 100 years in about 30 minutes, so, um, so you're going to have to hold on tight. There's also some cards that you received that talk about 20 significant events uh, that occurred in history, and so that's a good little piece for you. If you want to write some notes on it on the back, you're welcome to do that as well. Also, uh, we always have our sermons on, the, uh, on our website uh, a few days after. They'll be on there by Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, if you ever want to go back and, and re-listen, you're welcome to do that. So uh, I want us to start here, though, uh, where we would typically start. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I just want to remind you of what's going on here in our, our, our world. 
Because a lot of times it's easy for us to kind of concentrate and focus on, oh, that was the past, but now today. You know, we're so much more civilized today and things are different today. Uh, but just a reminder, in the world today, there are six billion people that are living. Two billion of them would call themselves Christians. The vast majority of them do not live in North America. We've talked about this before. We're seeing the great revivals occur in Africa and in Asia and in other areas, South America, but not uh, in North America. Um, also, we know that Christians uh, right now, uh, of those 2 billion people, 200 million of them are being persecuted. 200 million are being persecuted. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we know that uh, there are as many as 20 million in the last 13 years that have been killed if you take into consideration genocide uh, because of their belief system. Uh, so there is mass persecution continuing to this day. Matter of fact, more people are being persecuted today than any other time in history. Now, of course, that's true because there are larger numbers than any other time in history. Uh, but what's also interesting, in the midst of that persecution, we're seeing this growth occur. You know what the greatest... Uh, greatest number of conversions that have occurred in history. You know when that time period has occurred? In the last 30 years. More people have come to Christ in the last 30 years than any other time of history. Again, i.e., see Africa, uh, see Asia, China, uh, and South America. But it's remarkable what's happening. And as that occurs, of course, persecution occurs in, particularly in countries that have outlawed or at least uh, de determined not to tolerate Christianity. So just a reminder as we look at history, it's easy to say, oh, that was then, now's now. It still occurs today. Now, significant events in history, in Christian history, the first one has to be, of course, in 30 A.D., and we're not going to argue whether it was 29 A.D. or 33. Okay, scholars all over the board, exactly what year did Jesus die? We don't even know exactly what year he was born, but we can get it down to about a two- to three-year window uh, because of the dating system. But with that said, let's say right at 30 A.D. was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mammoth event for Christianity, that is the crucible of our faith, that event. Uh, when Jesus decide, determines uh, through the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus dies upon the cross. He is buried, and three days later, he rises. Okay? So, huge event. That's why we worship him, uh, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, from there, he later appears, and then after his last appearance, 40 days later, is Pentecost. Pentecost found in Acts chapter 2. Uh, that's when Peter is preaching. And everyone hears Peter in his own language. And we see the, the revival of Pentecost and 3,000 people come to faith at Pentecost. So, mammoth event. Uh, that leads us next to the conversion of Saul. Saul, which we know as the Apostle Paul, 35 A.D. He is converted. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, because Paul, if we went back and read... Uh, we could look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and, and uh, Philippians chapter 3, and, and Paul talks about, my purpose <clears throat> was, I was a zealot, <clears throat> I was religious, I was a Hebrew amongst the Hebrews, uh, I was a Benjamite, he tells us in, in Philippians chapter 3, and, and my purpose was to purify the church, was to purify Judaism, so to speak, not the church, but to pur purify Judaism, was to get rid 
of these Christians. We see that in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way, and we see how they're afraid of him and how they, they have great fear of him. So Paul, being a zealous Jew, some even say he was a zealot, he saw it as his call from God to exterminate Christianity. That's his goal. That's what he's been called to do. That's what he's been conditioned to do. He is a theologian, and he is an enforcer. <clears throat> so that's what he's doing. We know this from extra-biblical accounts, okay? So he's on the road to do what? To persecute Christians, to Damascus. He's going to arrest them. <clears throat> and everybody has fear when they know Paul's coming if they're a Christian. <clears throat> but on that road, he has a remarkable experience. He has what we call the Damascus Road experience. He encounters God. There's a vision. And God tells him, why are you persecuting me? Which, by the way, he's talking about the church. Why are you persecuting me? And so Paul has this revelation, and it is so remarkable that he completely turns, does a 180. Now uh, he is converted, and after a few years of studying, he becomes the principal spokesman and missionary of Christianity. And that's really pretty remarkable. I was sharing with Dr. Keith, Par uh, Dr. Keith Parsons, who's uh, PhD at, uh, of the philosophy department at the University of Houston that we had at a debate one time in a former church. And he was trying to explain this because we have uh, extra-biblical information about Saul's life and about his conversion. And, and um, he said, you know, the, Dr. Craig, William Lane Craig, the apologist, said, how do you explain Paul's conversion? He goes, well, he had a hallucination. He said, so he had one hallucination that transformed his whole life. How did he have that hallucination? I don't know. Maybe he had some weeds. Uh, I, I don't know what he had. I mean, he didn't have an answer for that, but we know he was a historical individual. We, we know that he existed. We know that there's some kind of radical transformation. How do you explain that? And you go to the hallucination theory, and uh, which I think it's just a little bit easier and less faith to just believe the Bible, uh, and particularly that incident, okay? And so... From Paul, uh, we see the missionary journeys, we see the spreading of Christianity, and we see the writing of somewhere between 14 and 17 New Testament books. Then 40 A.D. Uh, is the first time that we see the term Christians used. Before that, they were actually known as the Way. Uh, that was the name, and that's what Paul was out uh, to exterminate, and uh, because they were kind of viewed as a sect out of Judaism. But now they begin to be called Christians, we see in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And then 49 A.D. is the first council. It's the first church council that we're aware of. Matter of fact, we're pretty certain it's just the first church council, period. And so Peter and Paul, uh, the bishops, everyone, come, they all come together. And uh, the big, decide, the, the big uh, question at stake here is, what about all these Gentiles, particularly when Paul and his associates are leading to Christ, uh, they're becoming Christians, uh, do they have to become, for lack of a better way to say it, do they have to become Jews before they can become a Christian? There were certainly people teaching. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 10 that, hey, they're going to need to be circumcised and they're going to need to be, obey the customs. But Paul comes and gives a persuasive argument and they determine that, no, you don't have to become Jewish to be a Christian, that Gentiles don't have to become Jews, okay? Uh, it is by faith that we receive Christ. It's by an act of grace. And so that's established. Now, they didn't obliterate uh, the, moral, the moral law, which is basically the Ten Commandments. But Jesus dispensed of, what, the ritual law and the dietetic law. And so uh, this is 
kind of a fleshing of this out, and you'll see this throughout the book of Acts. Uh, but basically, hey, Christ and Christ alone. That's where salvation comes from. So you see that occurring at the Jerusalem Council in 49 A.D. And, and really, uh, we know that a lot of, some of the Bible was written as early as, some scholars would say as early as 35 A.D., but we don't really see the copies of the Bible, of the books of the Bible, and the, letter, the copies of the letters begin to occur between 50 and 90 A.D., which is huge. Remember, there's an initial letter that's written, and then the only way to do that, the only way to make more, were to copy them by hand, and we start to see copies uh, start to be made at that point. Then you see in 70 A.D. is a huge event. It's the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, if you want to look with me real briefly, uh, Jesus uh, predicts this. It's also in Luke chapter 21, he predicts uh, the destruction of Jerusalem itself. And then in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus prophesies verse 1 and 2. And as Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple building. And they said, look, Jesus, look at the magnificent temple. And it was outstanding. It was just unbelievable at that day. Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus said, yeah, that's magnificent, but let me tell you, there's not going to be one stone left on top of another. And again, in Luke chapter 21, he says, and Jerusalem, the city itself, will fall. You know what happens 40 years later in 70 A.D.? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, just as Jesus had prophesied, just as Jesus had told a huge event in history because now there is no temple. And you see, uh, you see the dispersion of the Jews and you see particularly of Christians spreading out. And uh, that is a, a mammoth event here in, in 70 A.D. Then in 100 A.D., there's a gentleman named Josephus. Now, Josephus is not a Christian. He is like Paul was. He's a Jew. He was a matter of fact, he was a Jewish priest. And uh, he had been captured during the, during the Jewish-Roman Wars, but then had found favor with the emperor and had become a historian, a recorder of history. So he records all the history. He's not favorable toward Christianity, but what's interesting <clears throat> is he makes a lot of recordings of things that happen in Christianity. He talks about John the Baptist in his life. He talks about Jesus and how he, was, how he died and was crucified. Uh, he gives us a lot of information that makes us historically understand that Jesus Christ not only lived and died, but who he was, and gives us a lot of great information. Uh, it lets us know that uh, he also gives us other information about when Christians worshipped. Uh, he talks about communion. He gives a, a lot of different information. And so he's a very credible source because he's not a Christian source, so even historians will often cite Josephus uh, for his works and his recording of the history of Christianity as well as the history of Jews. So it's very important for that man. He's an ancient historian during that time uh, who was not associated uh, with the believers, so to speak, or uh, the, the apostles. Uh, then in 112, there's a guy named Pliny, <clears throat> Pliny the Younger, matter of fact. And uh, he has consultation with the Emperor Trajan. Trajan's the emperor, and this is during the time, one of the times of persecution that has been enacted upon the church. And through that time of persecution, uh, Pliny is asking, how do I handle these situations? As a matter of fact, I've got a copy of this outside if you want to pick it up, a copy of this letter. Again, uh, he talks about Christians. He talks about how they met on the first day, how they observed a common meal, how uh, they wouldn't worship other gods, 
how they um, uh, shared their resources and how they took care of others. And he kind of goes on and on, and, and there are crimes and things that they will not participate in. Uh, and so he talks about how he tortured some of them to find out if there was another agenda. Uh, so again, it's just another historical documentation of the, the validity of Christianity and of the belief system and uh, what they endured during that time. Then we jump to 150 A.D., Justin Martyr. Now, his last name wasn't actually Martyr, uh, but that was a title that he was given. And the interesting thing about Justin Martyr, he is a Greek. He's, a, he's raised in paganism, so he has no affiliation with Judaism or Christianity whatsoever. He's very well educated, as a, basically as a lawyer and a philosopher, extremely educated, and he's known as a philosopher, where's the garb? Uh, but he became intrigued by the Christians who were being martyred. As he would see how they would die, that they died so much differently, and that they were willing to die and stand for their faith, and he was, he was moved by that. Now, it, it wasn't enough for him to be converted, but it just made him, it just really worked on his mind. And then one day he's walking on, on the seashore, and he encounters this older gentleman, and that gentleman begins to tell him the story of Christ. And he said, and as he was telling me the story of Christ, as he's sharing the gospel, my heart just so burned that I knew it was true. And so he listens to the story, and he listens to the old man. And then he goes back and he studies, and he begins to read the writings of Christ. And as he sees the prophecies that Jesus spoke that became true, he became convinced that this was true. And he becomes, becomes what we typically know as the first church apologist. He begins to defend the faith at a time when there were many attacks on Christianity. Uh, he, as a philosopher, begins to enter into debates with other philosophers and defend the faith and proclaim the faith, and eventually he, he himself is, is martyred. Uh, after him comes a guy named Tertullian. And uh, Tertullian writes the first Christian book on apologetics, and it's the oldest recording that we have. And he, he also terms two, two terms that we use today that aren't actually found in the Bible, but that are principal aspects of the faith. The first one is Trinity. He's the one that coined that term, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We have the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Trinity simply means three. Most of you know that. Okay? And then the term original sin. And so uh, he helps develop uh, an understanding of the Trinity, so he was an important early church father. Then we see the persecution has increased uh, over the next hundred year, years in Christianity. And at this point, there are only about 200,000 believers, and it will go to about 6.5 million believers over the next 200 years in a time of persecution. The greatest time of persecution was in 303 A.D. under Diocletian as he implements what's called the Great Persecution. We call it the Great Persecution because he made, not only is Christianity illegal, but he aggressively begins to pursue them. Burns all the churches, uh, burns all copies of Scripture, anything Christian that can be found that is made illegal. He, uh, he kills uh, most of the Christian leaders and um, it's just, it just an intense eight- to nine-year campaign to exterminate and stamp out Christianity. And then by God's grace and favor, we have the conversion of Constantine, the next emperor. And 312, most of you know historically the study. He goes before battle, he prays, and asks for help from God, and then he sees a sign of Christ. And uh, he sees, some say it was a cross, some say it was a Kyle, whatever it was. We don't, we don't know what exactly the emblem was that he saw. 
but he had this vision, and he believed, and he went, and he won the battle, and is converted to Christianity. Now, he is far from perfect, and is polytheistic in some ways, but what we see out of his, his time is the Edict of Milan, which is the, basically the official toleration of Christianity. Uh, is no longer illegal. People cannot persecute you for that. As a matter of fact, under the Edict of Milan, uh, Christians have their property and their resources restored that had been confiscated over the past 30 years. So it's a huge mammoth event. Also under Constantine, just a little bit of information, uh, he is the one who puts Christmas on December 25th. Remember, he's in a pagan culture. Remember how the persecution's been occurring? He now believes in Christ, and so he wants to see the culture changed. So one of the big pagan worshipers were, were the sun worshipers, and, and they uh, worshiped that. Their big festival was when? December 25th. So what does Constantine do? He goes, well, we're going to get rid of that, and we're going to replace it with the celebration of Christ's birth. does the same thing at Easter. Sometimes people say, well, those were really pagan holidays. Well, they surely were. And um, Constantine was trying to replace those pagan customs uh, with Christian customs. So that's kind of how those got started. Then we have the Council of Nicaea. It's the next big council that occurs. In the Council of Nicaea, uh, we see a couple things happening. Um, First of all, uh, they deal with the issue of who Christ is uh, because there are sects uh, and group paganism has kind of infiltrated some of the ranks. And uh, so uh, they, they go to the council. All the bishops are called together. Uh, there are over th- a little over 300, 303 of them, uh, we believe, was the best count that was given. And uh, some of them had scars from the persecution they had endured. So these were strong men. And uh, we see them dealing with the deity of Christ, that Christ was the Son of God. All 300, 300 of the 303 affirm that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Now, there was a guy named Arian who believed that uh, Jesus Christ was created later on by God, that he certainly was first, he was a creation of God, and that he was first among uh, mankind, so to speak, and that he was a a savior, but Arian wasn't willing to admit that he was God in the flesh. And so that was the big controversy. So they affirmed that fact, the deity and the trinity itself as well. And, uh, and they combated and branded Arian as a, as a heresy, as a heretic. And then also, uh, out of that edict, they determined that they would build a hospital in every major Christian city, uh, which was a big historical event at that time. Then in 380 A.D. under the Emperor Theodosius, this is where Christianity is made the official religion of the empire. Okay, It was made legal by Constantine during his reign, but now it becomes the official religion. And this was where you see kind of everybody coming in the door. Some would even point to it to say that this was kind of the watering down of the faith. Matter of fact, you also see the persecution of pagans during this time. So the the roles are completely reversed. And that doesn't end up being a great thing, by the way. Uh, Even today, that's not how we're to handle it, and it causes uh, much conflict and much strife. Well, then we see the fall of Rome happening uh, between 410 and uh, 467, I believe it is. And uh, and we kind of jump ahead. And the next big thing we see is in 1054, we see the great excuse me, in 732, we see the Battle of Tours. Now, some of you, if you know about history, maybe you know about the Battle of Tours. Uh, but what, what had happened during this time <clears throat> is the, 
Muslim countrymen, they had really become the dominant force in the known world. They had taken all, everything over what we would know as the biblical areas, the biblical geography today, uh, and they had conquered Syria, Egypt, all of North Africa, most of the modern known world, and they were on their way north to conquer Europe. They had already taken over much of Western Europe, and there was just one army, one group really left that stood between them and total domination. And uh, under Rahadam, they saw uh, themselves as the instrument of Allah to bring judgment upon mankind, that Islam was to rule the world and Allah was to be glorified in this way. And so that meant the uh, complete occupation and the conversion by force of all mankind, of all people groups of the modern world. Uh, So they had marched ahead and they had this huge cavalry. And they were the only known army in the world that uh, had a huge cavalry at this point. And uh, they had somewhere, we don't know how many troops, but somewhere between 80,000, some historians say as many as a quarter million, and probably 50 to 60,000 of those were uh, armed horsemen. Okay, they were the cavalry. And no one else had a cavalry like that. They also had uh, really uh, learned how to, uh, to use the technique of armament. So they had the armor, they had the horses, they had the lances. And they were just mowing down country after country, army after army. They come to Western Europe, and there's really just one left, the Franks. That's it. There's no one left to defend the country. They take over. They own Europe pretty much at this point uh, with just some little movements of resistance. So this is a mammoth battle. This is a mammoth decision. And Charles Martel is the leader of the Franks' army. He has 30,000 men. He does not have a cavalry, so he only has infantry. They do not have armor. Uh, they just have swords, and some of them have spears, and then farming uh, equipment. That's, that's what they have. So Charles Martel knows that he's greatly outnumbered. There's a superior military force. They've mowed through everyone else. And so he determines he takes his stand on a hill uh, there in northern France and outside of the, the, the city of Tours. And so when, when uh, the Islamic army comes up, they see it, and they're surprised because... Pretty much they've just seen small moves. Now there's 30,000 people there. And so they wait. They wait for them to come to them because they're up on a hill. Uh, and at that time, particularly, you don't want to be charging uphill. Uh, and it's a wooded area. And in the past, uh, the Islamic army, they would just kind of run and on flat ground. They'd send their, their cavalry after an army, and they would just decimate them. Well, they're up on this hill, and after about seven days, uh, you know, because they're from the east, it's starting to get cold in October. And they decide, hey, it's time to go. And uh, we, we've got to go take care of this because it's going to get really cold. We're not equipped for this. We don't have the clothing for it. So they decide, hey, we've, we've destroyed everybody else. So they take off in their horses and they charge up the hill. But the Franks stand strong. And it's the only one of the few times in history we see an infantry just defeating a cavalry. Uh, superior numbers, superior forces, superior weaponry. Uh, but yet they hold. And one of the things that Martel does when they, when they start to charge is he sends some of his troops, even though he has less, less men to deal with, less, you know, less infantry men than they have, he sends some of them to the back of the line, and they go and they free some of the slaves, and they start to take some of the loot that they've been accumulating as they have marched across the continent of Europe. And uh, some of the Turks hear about that. They send them back, they, and they, they go back to say, hey, that's our money, those are our slaves, and they leave the lines... And some of them start, some of the other soldiers see that and they think they're in retreat. So their leader, Ramadan, comes to the front trying to get them to go back and he is killed. 
There, there's a lance that, that hits him in the heart, and he is killed. And then the lieutenants can't decide who's going to be in charge, and so in the night they leave. And it's, it's really kind of chilling if you look at just miraculously how all that happened, how an inferior army with inferior numbers uh, is able to defeat this well-trained uh, army. And, uh, and, and as you look at it, though, historically, what would have happened if they had lost all of Europe would have been conquered and become an Islamic state. Uh, and so, and later on, of course, you know, three, four, three, a couple hundred years later, you see the uh, Europeans go trying to do the same thing. By the way, the, uh, the, uh, Islam, the Muslims were also trying to conquer land and gain, uh, gain capital as well. That was, it, was a, it was an economic reason as well, as, as well as a religious reading, reason. So that's the Battle of Tours, uh, big turning event. And um, then those cities in Europe that had been an Islamic rule slowly began to fall. And then you see uh, the westernization of Christianity as we know it today. 154 A.D., the Great Schism, up to that point, uh, it's, there's really not, as we know it today, church organizations, okay? It is just like the church. And um, although that can be debated, there certainly were lots of factions in it. But in 1054, the Great Schism we see occur uh, because of several reasons. One, uh, because of uh, there were seven popes at one, excuse me, seven bishops that kind of ruled at one point, and then because of the, what we just talked about, because of many of the cities had been overtaken and weakened through the fight and through the battles, there became just two primary ones: Constantinople and Rome. And um, so, as you know, people will do, they begin to debate. And the Church of Rome felt like they had primacy. Uh, and the Church of the East said, no, we don't think so. Uh, the Church in the East spoke Greek. Church in the West spoke Latin, had communication problems. They got mad at each other. This one goes over to excommunicate this one. This one communicates this one. Excommunicates this one. And then all of a sudden we have, and, and one other small issue that was in there as well was, uh, can, can priests and, and church leaders marry? The East said they could. West said they couldn't. Finally, we excommunicate each other. Hey, we're just going to start. We're going to take our ball and go home. And so you have the East Church, which becomes what? The Greek Orthodox Church, still exists today. The West Church becomes known as the Roman Catholic Church. And that's when the Roman Catholicism starts officially. I know people would argue with that, uh, but historically that's what most historians would say. And then you've got the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, and you see the split that occurs then. And then lastly, we or not lastly, two last things that we see happen uh, more recently is the Gutenberg Press. And the Gutenberg Press uh, enabled mankind to make mass copies of literature. And what's the first, thing, book, first book that's printed? The Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. This is important for a couple reasons. And by the way, uh, printing press had been invented three or 400 years before, but this was one that could mass produce, not just a page. You could literally do a book. Matter of fact, the Gutenberg Press could print as many as 47 books a day. So it was mammoth. And as he begins to print Bibles, what was big about that is people didn't own Bibles back then, okay? Uh, you would probably, the religious authorities would have one, and maybe there might be one in your community. And so you couldn't own a Bible. It was almost impossible to get one. Well, now the availability of Bibles, people could begin to read Bibles and see for themselves. This read, led to the early uh, linkings of the Reformation as people began to read and to understand it for themselves. And uh, so while Guten, Johann Gutenberg didn't invent the printing press, he did what Steve Jobs and Bill Gates did for computers, okay? They didn't invent computers, 
but everybody that owns one today pretty much in here, you, ever have, you either have one that comes from Gates or from Jobs now, okay? You have an Apple or you have a PC. That's what Gutenberg did for the press. So that's a big deal, which leads us to the 95 Theses. Most of you studied this in school. Uh, what was the 95 Theses about? Well, Martin Luther is disturbed primarily about the sale of indulgences. There were several things he was concerned about, but this is the one that sent him over the edge. There was a guy named Charles, uh, John Tetzel who, um, who came up with this, this phrase as he would collect indulgences. As a matter of fact, the 95 Theses was originally uh, written by Luther as the efficacy and uh, the power of indulgences. And so he was writing a, a paper against it. And indulgences was simply this, that uh, if you pay me, I will pray for your relatives or friends to be taken out of purgatory, to reduce their time in purgatory to, or to relieve them from purgatory. And some uh, corrupt individuals went as far as to say, you can pay me and now it will absolve you of your sins currently and sins that, that for the living. And so Luther had just, you know, this blew his mind, had enough. He goes and posts the 95 Theses up on the board. Matter of fact, uh, Tetzel's famous quote was, when the coins in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Okay? And, you know, that's it. People are, there, there's corruption. People are so ready that that's when the Reformation is sparked. Luther wasn't planning on starting a Reformation, but that's exactly what happens. Two things about his 95 Theses that you see are principal uh, issues that occur, or principal thoughts that occur that still affect us today. Number one, that the Bible is the central and highest authority on earth. And number two, salvation comes by faith. Now that is a short history of Christianity and the church and how we got to where we are. And I want to read one last thing to you uh, that's from Adolf Hitler, because I think it speaks well of what we wrestle with today and what's still going on today. And as you, you hear this, um, it's, it's just very compelling to me and very understandable that Satan has been alive and well all throughout church history. You see the persecutions, you see the schisms, you see the events that occur and it's not if Satan is going to attack, it's how are the true believers going to respond. Hitler in 1933 was interviewed <clears throat> as he was coming into power about how he would ultimately reign and what his strategy was. And one of them was to destroy the church. Uh, and this is what Hitler said. He said, you know, the church has always been something great. Good God, good people. This, this is an institution, and it's already had 2,000 years of existence. But now its time is up. I will not make martyrs out of them. We will brand them as simple cr criminals. I will rip the mask of respectability from their face. And I will make them laughable and contemptuous. I will make movies written, and we will show the history of priests in the film. The people can be amazed at the whole mess. Uh, how they were corrupt and how they caused problems, how they tried to undo the Jews, how they committed incest, how they will make it so exciting. And matter of fact, we will make movies and we will write books that make it so exciting that everybody will want to see it. People will stand in line outside of theaters and if the hair of those citizens should stand on their neck, all the better. The youth will understand it. They'll buy this. The youth and the people... I will gladly give up the others. I guarantee if I want to, I can destroy the church within a few years. 
It is, also, it is such a hollow belief system, and it is so fragile through and through. When pushed with a little force, it will collapse. And I will demonstrate this by pushing, by making it in a situation where they would have to give up their good living, their profits. And if that's the case, they will easily change. They will swallow everything in order to maintain their material position. And it won't even come to a fight. Sound familiar? What we see happening in our culture today, it's not new, is it? I just want us to realize that we have a history of, of Christianity of where men and women, even though we don't know their names, even though we don't always know their stories, and I'll share a few stories next week, have suffered and died for the faith that we have. Not only that, there are people today overseas that are suffering and dying because of their faith. And the church has been built upon this kind of character. And the gates of hell will not prevail. The question is, what difference does it make to you? What difference does it make to me? What foundation are you building your life upon today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, I thank you uh, for the events that have occurred through history, some that are despicable, some that are remarkable, but all that uh, are under your dominion. And I pray today, Lord, that as we see more people coming to Christ than any other time in history, that we would not be lulled into a sense of security and materialism that we forget what's going on around us in this world. That uh, accountability will be collected at some point for the life that we live, for the things that we've been given. I pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful as individuals and as a church. And may your name be praised. And Lord, if there's one today that doesn't know you, I pray that you'd draw them by the power of your Spirit, that they'd come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.